You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Welcome to the show, everybody. I met today's guest almost 10 years ago at a Christmas holiday party. We bonded right away over the novel East of Eden, as well as the movie, because who doesn't love James Dean's performance? Maybe one of the great young actors to ever grace the silver screen. And there was instant chemistry between us. We ended up spending a great deal of time talking together. We talked about everything, especially stories and story engines and conflict and characters and the joy of world building. She's been a staff writer on numerous television shows and recently has written a terrific pilot for ABC. Honestly, it would make a brilliant show. I hope it gets greenlit. We've been collaborating in a number of ways on the Looking Glass Wars, which we'll touch on today, but she's that person that I enjoy spending all of my time with. She's smarter than I am. She's better looking than I am. The one thing that I am good at is I know a good thing when I see it. So I asked her to marry me. She said yes, luckily. We got married in May, so I couldn't be happier to have her on the show as my partner in life, my creative soulmate, and she's certainly the most beautiful human on the planet as far as I'm concerned. So welcome to the show, Teresa Lynn. Well, Teresa Bedore Lynn now. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's nice to be on air. Um, it's It's kind of 
interesting to be sitting across from you and have this sort of spatial and audit auditory distance um, when it feels like our collaboration has always come from this inside space where we're really deeply connected and so, well, I'll reach out and yeah. hold your hand if okay. you get nervous. <laughs> I can be an intimidating guest at times with very probing questions. But uh, but I think it's important that we start uh, a little bit with your creative background. I mean, you can go back as far as you like, but I'm interested in the evolution from, you know, a quick synopsis of your time in Taiwan to the States to Duke to USC film school to starting in the film um, business and or in the television business as you got your first uh, one of your first jobs as a writer, a professional writer on the TV show Bones. And well, one of the ways that I really like to contextualize how I came to story and storytelling has always been this imaginative space, this expanse, if you will, um, that I, I filled by, um, because I, I had no access to television and, um, and I was kind of a solo kid for a while growing up in Taiwan with both parents working. And I was brought up really by the school teachers and the school principal and myself pretty independent when I was young. So I was given a, a set of um, art supplies and some books, and that was I was left to myself. So pretty much that, that expansive creativity and imagination and filling in um, started there. And um, I remember the very first film that I was taken to by my grandmother in, in this village of Jiayi, and uh, she took me to Snow White. And... <laughs> It was, you know, how far-reaching Disney right. uh, was at the time, and it still is, and shaping, you know, what I remembered being, you know, the magic of cinema, and also what the model of, you know, what girls should grow up to be, um, and in a culture where, you know, being in, in Taiwan, it was the Chinese culture, where women were told and were taught, kids and girls especially, were taught to be, you know, quiet and subservient and... Um, and just really the, the the quiet and small spaces that I had to fill, I did with my imagination and with these stories. So when I came to um, Florida, to America, we started, um, we, we bought into a motel where we worked and lived. And that was sort of our next stage of my, my sort of bird's eye view into American culture. And I was quite enamored with what America stood for, um, and then quite startled by the reality of what it looked like and felt like living in a motel next door to this Baxter's Lounge, which was a transvestite bar in a not-so-great part of Tampa, Florida. So <laughs> I think the, um, again, the discrepancy between what was imagined and what was sold to me and what the reality was fed, you know, further gave me fodder for creating stories. And then all the life experiences I had growing up, you know, between my parents giving me this cultural background of, you know, what it means to be Chinese and Taiwanese and keeping to the, um, the ethics and the, the standards of high education and, you know, education being number one and the, the, the number one driving force in my life and, and understanding and that, you know, if I were educated, um, then that would be my ticket 
up in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave me, you know, a, a tremendous work ethic and um, it landed me at Duke and then at USC film. But all this time, you know, people are always surprised when I tell them that, you know, I didn't really find cinema or were able to watch movies until I was in college. Wow. And at that we- time it was... Was, it was that translation of, you know, it was my, I remember the book that did it for me. It was reading The Godfather by Mario Puzzo and how much it drew me in and how similar it was to my culture, this Italian culture of family and um, how it translated to me and then watching the movie and having this totally internal and external experience of someone else's um, interpretation of that book. And I thought, Oh my God, this is a thing. <laughs> and ever since then, I was I was just driven by this idea of, um, you know, how people say that movies and film are in an immediate empathy machine. Right. So when someone is, you know, watching it, they're breadcrumbed into the feeling and experience of these characters. And I think somebody who's come in like me, who's come in from the outside and really wants to be on the inside, for me, language and storytelling was a way to draw people in. I'm curious about the the difference that you, if you remember, between the book and the experience with the movie, and if you were able to, when you walked out of the theater, if you did any kind of critique, or did they just stand on their own two feet, and you just marveled that the story worked as a novel and worked as a book? I mean, or did you have an internal dialogue or... Well, I didn't watch the film when it came out at the, in the theaters. It was uh, VHS. It was uh, right. on a t- television screen. But um, for me, it was the sensation at times of deja vu mm. because it was so similar to what I had imagined. And then at times it was really different. Mm. And because of casting or, oh, I didn't see or experience the character in in such a tone. It was tonal. Um, But nonetheless, it was a depiction of family. And I think that the part of it that was the tension, the tension between the characters, the family, the conflict that was so um, descriptive prescriptive of what family hierarchy looked like Mm. and that translated into you know the mafia but for me because as a child you know you felt the reverberation of the adults making the very important you know decisions and the serious talks and my family had gone through a lot of let's just say a lot of uh, drama and legal things because of the motel and because of us becoming as immigrants. And so there was a lot of um, misunderstanding and, um, and I guess subtext between subtext, the words right, that between, you're trying to absorb as a kid. Right. And, and, and what to... we're feeling and, right. and, and the conflict that's out there and the fear of the unknown and not knowing how to control it. And also I was the first person in my family to, really study English. My mom took some English classes um, where she worked, but really I was the oldest of uh, three daughters and I was uh, the first one in my family to really get a grasp of English. And so I became sort of the translator and I was translating a lot of legal documents or I was at the running the front desk of this motel and talking to adults and negotiating prices. And so it was me engaging with this um, adult world and trying to translate that to my parents as well. Were you 
you a teenager or younger when you were doing this? Oh, younger, younger. I think I started around nine, what? nine, what? ten, and then, yeah, we all just Had worked as a family ch- business. But right. it's you know, but the 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 importance of understanding, having a grasp of the language, was paramount mm-hmm. as to to who I am, the role that I played in my for my for my family, and what I took away from from that um, was that. If I could be understood, then people can be on my side because understanding is a precursor to to love and acceptance. So for me, language was the key, mm-hmm. you know, and knowing how to tell a story well and contextualize it for the other person is the key to being understood. So story has been a big part of your life, but you were also thinking about, I believe you wanted to be a lawyer or you thought you would go into law. And of course, in law, there's a a lot of things. There's performance. There's story, mm-hmm. but there's, there's also the interpretation of the also to the interpretation, the ability to absorb a lot of information and then retell the story the way that you want to present it. Right. I, so you know, as as with a lot of immigrant families and for their children, you know, you understand that the sacrifices they made means that you are either going to become a doctor, a lawyer, or something of the like. <laughs> I think I was just given or the president. Two. <laughs> no, you can't be yeah, president. president. Right. Right. <laughs> So that's off the table. Um, so for me, because you know, legal translating legal documents was already part of my repertoire. I think the um, the debate team and and being uh, in the America's Legal Association for Young Attorneys, Young Lawyers was uh, part of part of what a club that I belonged to and was allowed to belong to. Um, but but yeah, to your point, um, this play with words and understanding and you know, digesting words and understanding how they fit and how to, you know, contextualize, you know, uh, someone's subjective narrative and understanding what the greater purpose is for for writing something or for telling a story. Um, That's always been, that's that's a muscle that's been well honed in my life. So we've been a couple for a decade Married five months, but a couple for a decade, <laughs> which has a nice ring to it. Um, uh, but uh, why don't you tell the audience your first encounter with Alice in Wonderland and what your reaction to the story? My very, uh, I would say that Alice in Wonderland came to me again through Disney. Right. Um, so the Disney film, um, watched it maybe, I don't remember, probably when I was 12, 11 or 12. And, you know, it's blonde little girl that falls down the rabbit hole and has a lot of nonsensical events that happen to her. And it's, you know, it tickles everybody to think of, oh, what if I changed in size? What if um, you're in this dream place where nothing seemed to make sense? And so it kind of frees you up to logic, from logic, and it allows you to to be playful. And I remember it getting pretty dark, um, you know, with the red, with the queen of hearts and, and, um, and then it just was resolved by it all being a dream. I don't think I connected to Alice in that way as much as I did to some other Disney characters. Um, because I think this idea of staying a child and, um, and not wanting to grow up was not 
the opposite. Of was exactly the, the opposite, opposite of, of what, what I was conditioned to do. <laughs> <laughs> and the path you were on, because you, you finished high school early, you went to Duke, you finished Duke early, you wanted to get into your adulthood, into your career, and what ultimately became, you know, writing for television. Yeah, I think I think the the path of writing for television showed itself um, down the road. But I think I was always fascinated. I mean, as a as a kid, I used to live in the library, and I used to go into uh, the research section and look up all the ways that fairy tales um, evolved from mm-hmm. Europe, right. and, and all the different um, origin tales, origin stories coming from all across different cultures and how they evolved and how they came into our consciousness. And I was just fascinated with it, and I'm not quite sure why, but I just really was very interested because also in Chinese lore and mythology, a lot of these tales were told to us as cautionary tales. Mm-hmm. There were ways that our lessons came to us. And if, you know, if, if things, if, if we as kids didn't do the right thing, then these are the consequences. So it was sort of, I needed to understand that. Um, I was raised some Buddhist, um, but also at the times when uh, stories were given to us and that were contextualized, okay, well, if you tell lies, this is what's going to happen to you. If you do this, this something else bad is going to happen to you. So I think as a kid or as a person, you want to examine like what, what is the worst thing that can happen to me? Right. Well, for me, it's the devil. (laughs) Yes. And hell. (laughs) That's right. Being burned forever. Um, So, but now looking at the larger lens of stories and you know and Alice I I I wanted to revisit that because I remember when I first met you and I was re I was learning and reading about the looking glass wars and how you've reimagined Alice um it was really it was really inspiring because you were giving you were empowering a female um, a, a girl to become a warrior, a queen, and more importantly for me, it was somebody who had to look back and reconcile the history of her past, and not just her or under not just her own past, but her family's past. And that's something that I really i I recognized within my own past in my own history. And this is a motif um, that you're really, really deeply invested and interested in your past and and using it in storytelling. The project that you have set up now is very much the lead character is very much a lot of a lot of the impetus for my writing has to do with how we tell our stories and, and and with that how it forms our identity. And how in order to move on, and we need to look back and reconcile our past and to contextualize it, not just for ourselves, for our, you know, for the, for our, not ancestors, but our, our, you know, generational um, traumas that need to be reconciled in order for us to understand how to move on um, and to pass that on to our, to our kids, to our daughters and sons. So this, this story, I think we, as I think humanity, as, as, a, as a species, we need story to help us understand and give value and meaning to everything we've gone through. 
outside of our just our immediate emotional responses. So, you know, we were we were a couple for I think it was two, three years, and you had your focus on the things that you were doing work-wise. I had the things that I was working on. Of course, we talked about the looking glass wars, but we weren't we weren't collaborating. We yeah. were I remember you were diving, diving back into developing the musical. And we went for a walk um, in Minnesota around Christmas the lake, lake, Christmas Lake, where mm-hmm. I grew up. And I was lamenting this problem with the, adapting the, muse, the looking glass words into a musical. And I was stuck. And, and I, 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 I thought, I don't know what it is I'm trying to take on shoehorning this novel that I've lived with for all these years into a musical, but I had been inspired by Wicked and I really thought it could work. But as I think I, as I remember telling you, um, the character of, um, well, you were having a hard Prince time Leopold. reconciling Prince. Alice with two love interests. Well, and in, in that they were separated, and half of the show was with Prince Leopold, and then half of it was back with Dodge. And I said, that's never going to work, and I don't know how to fix it. And so we kept walking, and you didn't say anything for a little bit. And then you just turned and went, well, I think, I think if they're the same character, that would work. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, that um, that Prince Leopold is, in fact, also Dodge, and Dodge is Prince Leopold. So they'll go back and forth between our world and Wonderland. And, you know, I was in love with you before that, but that moment was, wow. I think I grabbed your hand and said, I'm not ever going to let go. (laughs) I thought that moment happened (laughs) when I hit that putty, I hit that ball into the oh that's true all in that's the pot, true. putting that's green true. that's true we went on a, a little vacation and uh it was a golf course and we i showed her i was showing her i'm trying to teach her how to putt, putt. And i brought you to that green and um and it was about a 60 foot downhill breaking putt and you sank it and i was that that's true okay i think that was the first moment well that was the second that was the athletic moment because (laughs) i live in two spaces i live in athletic space and i live in the creative space and so uh that was more of my past coming through and the no that was really fun I, i i do remember the moment you're talking about around christmas lake um when you looked at me with new eyes yes and thought you and I can collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we have, and, you know, it was interesting. We've talked about a lot of different musicals, and you started writing the the outline for what they call the book, uh, which is the which is the outline for the composer and the lyricist. And those are really, those are tricky uh, to, to... It was really fun because there's another aspect of my past or my my childhood that Frank didn't know about. And working on this project with him allowed me to to really go into and plumb, and, you know, in into this past where I had music in my life. We didn't have a television really, but we had a piano. And uh, we always played and sang, and so musicality was always a part of our family life. And um, when I was allowed to, when I was invited in to work on this musical, I really had fun writing. Yes, uh, and you love to dance as well. And... You're uh, you're quite the dancer. But what we were what we were kind of 
trying to sort out was the tone. Um, you know, we were looking at Les Mis as an example yep. for a bit. We were also looking, uh, obviously, Wicked. Yeah, we were Moulin looking Rouge. at these great sweeping love stories because ultimately it's a big love story um, that drives it. But it's also, um, we wanted to make it fresh and we want to look at examples of how, you know, you take something that we all know um, in popular culture, the zeitgeist, and 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 take a left turn with that that project and so it's like reimagining and reinventing something that feels familiar and giving it um, a twist. And musically you had a lot of um, various songs that a couple you'd, you, for each scene you'd usually put a song or two that you were familiar with that was the kind of roadmap of what we were thinking for a future composer right. um, lyricist um, and uh, do you recall some of the songs that you thought would capture the best tone of I I um I don't remember I don't I don't remember I don't have it in front of me but um there was where is my song I think there was one that I wrote was my song or where is my song well Um, you wrote you wrote mother was another one that that was recalling it was her um her yeah calling out for her mother but you um, and you wrote some. You wrote some lyrics. Um, you got inspired and yes. uh, wrote some lyrics. I think it's and... the, the uh, your song or my song. I forget yeah. exactly what it's called. We should look at it and do that one. Um, but yeah, it was it was really it. I think that if we if given the time and the space to to really do a deep dive, it's it flows because it's there's so much material there to draw from. Yeah, and I think the aspect of being able to establish the reimagining of what happened with Lewis Carroll, but ultimately that this is driven by this love story and her coming back to home and to her destined love. Right, and, so, her, and her finding her sense of identity in all of that. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm, you know, so that that's been really enjoyable. I mean, one of the one of the challenges that we both have in terms of finding the entry point for the Looking Glass Wars beyond the books and graphic novels is what's the what's the right medium, what's the timing, and what's the best story. Um, just just in the same way that the movie has really limited. Um, parameters and time the musical you have 20 songs and you have to compress and condense and i had i've found that to be you know very difficult because you know maybe i'm too close to this source material but but when we started talking about it as a tv show and especially the way that streamers are working where right. you can where you can have multiple stories multiple storylines right. multiple timelines mm-hmm. it started to show itself as a real exciting mm-hmm. avenue i really enjoy stories watching stories now where um the characters are tied together and the stories are con- tied together thematically not 
not through chronology or space and time. So the, the, the characters don't necessarily have to be in the same space and, you know, to, to share something that's really meaningful. Um, and I love the way that sometimes storylines cut across each other just by um, maybe there's a pivotal scene or an emotional scene where the emotions itself connects to characters. So we're really able to explore that in the, in the TV show um, model because of the magic system and the emotionality that ties um, Hatter and Alice together and also something that ties Red, um, Queen Red, um, who's also Rose, and, and explores you know, some of the reasons why she became Red um, in her timeline as a teenager with her sister. So I, I, I really want to bring it back and ground it back to the family story. Right. You know, I know the, the scope of the show is huge. You know, it's Wonderland, Wonder Nations. There's a whole Wonderverse out there that you've created over 20 years, and there's so many characters and really cool concepts. But underneath it all, it's a family story. And for me, it's the Hart family. It's what happened, you know, back in the day with um, the queens and when things got out of balance and and then their ability to wield imagination and how that ripples out to the rest of the world. And for Alice, it's a redemption story. It's a redemption story for her family and ultimately um, for herself and in the decision of who she wants to be going forward. I'm really glad I married you. <laughs> so bring it bringing it full circle to to family your family the um the godfather and the looking glass wars um finding that strong theme uh of of family and anchoring it in that is um is something that i would like to continue to explore with you in these podcasts we can if you'd like to come on again, if you've if I've been a good host and you would honor me with another uh, another episode, we can continue our continue our conversation and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about what we're doing with the book. What do you think? Will you come back? Well, it'll depend on what you do tonight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh huh. Okay. You I know? have a sh- I have a short list. <laughs> But yes, of course, I would love to um, come back and share our process. All right. Well, um, it's really uh, nice to uh, nice chat with you across the table and uh, to expand our our collaboration in this way. So I love it. All right. All right. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks for having me. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. (laughs) Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?